Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, too. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Marcus Borg is Professor Emeritus in the Philosophy Department at Oregon State University, where he held the Hundare Chair in Religion and Culture until his retirement in 2007. He's currently Canon Theologian at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Internationally known in both academic and church circles, he was an active member of the Jesus Seminar and served as national chair of the Historical Jesus Section of the Society of Biblical Literature. He's past president of the Anglican Association of Biblical Scholars. He's a regular columnist for BeliefNet and the author of 19 books, including Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time and The Heart of Christianity. His newest book and the topic of today's presentation is Speaking Christian, why Christian words have lost their power and meaning and how they can be re restored. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Marcus Borg. Well, good afternoon. Oh, you sound like Episcopalians. <laughs> Methodists and Baptists just shout it out, you know. Anyway, let me begin by saying that I'm very grateful to be here. It's an honor and a privilege to be invited to be part of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. And it's also a bit of a homecoming for me. I was born in Minnesota, in Fergus Falls to be precise, and then spent 10 years living in exotic eastern North Dakota, and at age 11 moved back to Moorhead where I went to junior high, high school, and college. I have sometimes remarked that I'm one of the few people in the world who went to both a high school and a college that had vegetables as their mascots. The Moorhead High School Spuds and the Concordia Cobbers. <laughs> so, very nice to be here. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, my new book. It was actually released on Tuesday of this week. I don't know why they talk about releasing books. It sounds like they've been caged for a while, but it's out there now. And the title of the book, as well as the title of my talk today, is Speaking Christian. And I begin with part one, the premise of the book and of this talk. It's a very simple, but I think illuminating and important premise. Namely, religions in an important sense are like languages. To be part of a religion includes using, hearing, and understanding that religion's language. Thus, to be Jewish means speaking Jewish. To be Muslim means speaking Muslim. To be Buddhist means speaking Buddhist, and so forth. And so also, to be Christian means speaking Christian. And here I don't mean the ancient languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, but rather knowing the big words, the basic vocabulary, the central stories of the Christian tradition. Now, of course, religions are about more than words, about more than speaking. They also involve a way of seeing reality and an ethos, a way of life, and of course we get the word ethics from ethos. But all of this is conveyed in language, in words. 
let me suggest that being Christian is a little bit like being French, or if you wish, Turkish, or Korean, and so forth. Now, to be French includes speaking French, but we would not consider somebody to be fluent in French if they could only speak French but not understand French. And so also being French involves membership in a community, that is, citizenship, and being French involves a way of life, a French ethos. Now, in that sense, being Christian is like being French. To use a short phrase that I owe to uh, a scholar named George Lindbeck for over 40 years, a professor of theology at Yale Divinity School and Yale University, in a book called The Nature of Doctrine, published in 1984, Lindbeck refers to religions as, and here comes the semi-technical phrase, quote, cultural hyphen linguistic traditions, end of quote. Something simple and important is meant by that phrase, cultural linguistic traditions. Namely, each religion originated in a particular culture, a particular time and place, and used the language of that culture, even if it also challenged that culture in significant ways. And then, religions that survived over time became cultural linguistic traditions in their own right, with their own language, stories, understandings, and ethos. So, being Christian involves speaking Christian. That's the premise. I turn now to the problem. For many people in our time, Christian language is becoming an unfamiliar language, and even more seriously, a, a very often misunderstood language to begin with it becoming an unfamiliar language. In this country, and even more so in Europe, of course, but in this country, in recent decades, more and more people have grown up unchurched. I have an acquaintance who's a sociologist of religion who specializes in demographics, religious demographics. And her conclusion is that people born in this country in 1963 or earlier grew up when there was a strong cultural expectation in most parts of this country that you would be part of a church. And that people born in 1964 or later grew up in a time when that cultural expectation was beginning to wane. I experienced this especially when I moved from teaching at Carleton College in Northfield in 1979 to the state of Oregon. Oregon was at that time, and I'm convinced still is, even though Vermont is trying to take the title away from us, the least churched state in the country. <laughs> uh, statistics suggest that roughly 23 to 28 percent of the population of Oregon claims a connection to a church. The largest religious groups are skiers and hikers. Okay? <laughs> And uh, that meant that roughly half of my students in my classes at Oregon State grew up without ever having gone to church unless it was for a wedding or a funeral. And once I realized that, I started each of my classes that had to do with Christianity or the Bible by having my students on the first day of class take 10 minutes and put at the top of a piece of paper the words, me and Christianity, or me and the Bible, and I would ask them to tell me about their previous acquaintance, their impression of Christianity or the Bible, and so forth. Well, here are some of the responses I got. One young man wrote, my parents didn't go to church, and so I really don't know much about the Bible, except I think there's a story in there about a guy in a fish. A young woman wrote, 
my folks aren't part of a church, and all I really know about Christians is that they're really against trespassing. <laughs> all in favor of property rights, right? But this unfamiliarity with Christian language extends to many Christians as well. For example, half of American Christians cannot name the four Gospels. Two-thirds do not know that the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew's Gospel. Seventy percent thinks the statement, God helps those who help themselves, comes from the Bible. <laughs> and of course, it doesn't. So, Christian language with its roots in the Bible is increasingly becoming unfamiliar. But even more seriously, as I mentioned, it is often a misunderstood language. And this is because the meanings of its central words and its central stories have been shaped by two central features of what I call common Christianity. And with that phrase, common Christianity, I mean simply what most Christians, Protestant and Catholic alike, shared in common a generation or two ago, and thus took for granted. And what I am calling common Christianity continues today as the heart of fundamentalist and most conservative Christianity, and it is also found among some mainline Christians as well, oftentimes because they have not been exposed to an alternative. The first of these features I call the literalization of Christian language. And I use the word literalization to indicate that this is a process that has been going on for a couple hundred years. The hard form of literalism affirms that everything the Bible says is the literal, factual, and absolute revelation of God. If the Bible says something happened, it happened. If the Bible says something is wrong, it's wrong. And this understanding of biblical language commonly goes with claims of biblical inerrancy or biblical infallibility. Let me provide you with one example of this. 48% of American Protestants believe that the earth and the universe are less than 10,000 years old. Now think about that for a moment. How much of modern knowledge do you need to deny in order to affirm that? From astronomy, geology, paleontology, anthropology, the list goes on and on. Now, how is it that almost half of American Protestants believe in a young earth, typically that the earth was created around 6,000 years ago? I don't think the reason is invincible ignorance or the abject failure of our educational system. The reason is that they belong to churches that teach a literal, factual interpretation of Genesis. And if you read the Genesis stories of creation within this literal, factual framework and add up all the genealogies back to Adam, you do come up with the year of creation as being around 4000 BCE. By the way, we have a beer advertisement from ancient Babylon that is around 6,500 years old. So beer was being advertised in Babylon before the earth was created. <laughs> now, of course, language hadn't been invented yet. Rather, it's a big-breasted woman advertising beer. Not much has changed. All right. <laughs> now, that's just one example of literalism. 
And what I want to emphasize in particular is that a literal understanding of biblical language and of post-biblical language, like the language of the creeds, not only flattens the meaning of this language, but it makes much of this language incredible and unbelievable. Peter Gomes, um, who died recently, author of a couple bestsellers, and was a, a university chaplain at Harvard for many years, said that more people have left the church over the last 40 years because of biblical literalism than for any other reason. And here I note in passing, as I complete my comments about literalism, that biblical inerrancy and an emphasis upon the literal interpretation of scripture are neither ancient nor traditional Christianity, but are modern, the product of the last few hundred years. The second feature of common Christianity that has strongly shaped the understanding of Christian language is an understanding of Christianity's core message of what is at the heart of Christianity. And I oftentimes, when helping people to see what this core message was, I invite them to engage in a memory exercise. And we don't have time to do that together today, but I'll share with you what the memory exercise is, and you can do it on your own or in an adult group. Suppose you had been asked at the end of childhood, at age 12 or so, to state the heart of the Christian message, the gospel, in a sentence. What would you have said? Why did Christianity matter? Why should you or anybody be Christian? And let me share with you my answer at the end of childhood. I'm quite sure I would have said something like this. In a sentence, Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven if we believe in him. Now note what it emphasizes, the afterlife. The afterlife was so central to my late childhood understanding of Christianity that if you had been able to convince me at age 12 or so that there was no heaven, I would have had no idea why I should be Christian. It also emphasizes our sinfulness. By the way, think of how central this continues to be in most Christian worship services. Almost every Christian Sunday morning service has a confession of sin and then the absolution, the pronouncement of forgiveness, and of course, every Sunday morning, many of us sing the Kyrie in its wonderful musical settings, but think of the words, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. This dynamic of sin and forgiveness is very central to Christianity. I have a Buddhist acquaintance who said to me once, you Christians must be very bad people. You're always confessing your sins. And this is where Jesus comes in. It's because Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins that we can be forgiven. The technical name for that is substitutionary sacrifice or substitutionary atonement. And finally, we are saved by believing this to be true. Now, the common Christianity of the recent past can also be called heaven and hell Christianity because of its emphasis upon the afterlife and with the at least implicit possibility of a less than blessed afterlife. Now, this understanding shapes the meaning of much of Christian language. In fact, 
this heaven and hell Christianity almost becomes like a black hole that sucks the meaning of Christian language into its nothingness. To explain what I mean, an obvious comment, words have their meanings within contexts, within frameworks. A very simple example, the word elephant means something quite different in the context of a zoo or a game park in Africa or in the context of a poem or in the context of a political cartoon. Frameworks shape meaning. Now, within the framework of common Christianity or heaven and hell Christianity, let me give you some examples of important Christian words, what they mean within that framework, and then what they more appropriately mean within the larger and more ancient framework of the Bible and the pre-modern Christian tradition. I begin with the word salvation. It's one of the big Christian words as central to Christianity as nirvana is to Hinduism or enlightenment is to Buddhism. It names the aim, the goal, the purpose, the yearning of the Christian life. And when I tested the word salvation within an intergenerational discussion group about two years ago, made up of people either deeply involved in a church or serious seekers who were considering Christianity, I was startled to discover that for 80% of that group, the word salvation had only negative associations. One of our big words, having only negative associations. And the reasons it had only negative associations? In their minds, it was associated with the afterlife, and the possibility of hell. And many of them reported being deeply anxious as children and early teenagers about whether they were good enough or believed strongly enough to avoid going to hell. The word was also associated with a kind of dividing the world into an in-group and an out-group, and more than a few of them reported a degree of smugness in their congregations about belonging to the in-group, whereas most of the world belonged to the out-group. But in the Bible, salvation is seldom about an afterlife. It never is in the Old Testament, and only occasionally is it about an afterlife in the New Testament. In the Bible, salvation is consistently about transformation in this life, this side of death. It's about liberation from bondage, the exile story. It's, or sorry, the Exodus story. It's about return from exile to home, the story of the Jewish experience of exile in Babylon. It's about deliverance from illness or enemies. Most basically, it's about transformation. Salvation is about transformation of ourselves and ultimately of the world, this side of death. So also the word saved. Within the common framework, to be saved means to be saved from our sins. In the Bible, to be saved sometimes means that, but most often it means to be saved from bondage, to be saved from blindness, to be saved from exile. The word Savior, within common Christianity, Savior refers to Jesus as the one who saves us from our sins. But in the Bible, God is spoken of as the Savior of Israel in the context of the story of the Exodus. And there's nothing about sin in that story, not until they get to the wilderness. But the Hebrew slaves in Egypt are not slaves because they're sinners. 
If Moses had come into Egypt and said to the Hebrew slaves, my children, I have good news for you. Your sins are forgiven. They would have said, you idiot. Can't you see that's not our problem? Our problem is that we are being politically oppressed and economically exploited. We are slaves. We need freedom, not forgiveness. So also in the New Testament, to be saved seldom means to be saved from our sins. And also, um, Jesus is referred to as Savior without the context being sin. Similarly with the family of words redeem, redeemer, redemption. Within common Christianity, these words mean Jesus redeems us from our sins. He is the redeemer who brings about our redemption. But in the Bible, this family of words is not about sin. It's about release from bondage. Or the word repentance. Within common Christianity, repentance typically means feeling deep contrition about our sinfulness and resolving to live differently. But in the Bible, repent and repentance have two primary meanings. One comes from the Jewish experience of exile in Babylon. And here the word repent means to return, to embark upon a journey of return to the place where God is. And in the New Testament, the Greek word adds an additional nuance of meaning. The Greek roots of the word mean to go beyond the mind that you have. And what is the mind that we have? It's the socialized mind that we all acquired growing up in which we internalize the central values of our culture and so forth. To repent means to go beyond the mind that you have. That's very rich. A few more. The word sacrifice. Within the framework of common Christianity, sacrifice most often refers to Jesus' death on the cross as payment for our sins. But in the Bible, the word sacrifice never refers to a substitutionary payment for sins. It means to make something holy by offering it up to God. Jesus made his life holy or sacred by offering it up to God, not because God required a sacrifice, but because of Jesus' sheer devotion and his passion for the kingdom of God. One more example. The words righteous and righteousness, they occur about 500 times in the Bible. But the modern meaning of righteous is not very positive. You know, if you hear it said about somebody that he or she is very righteous, you know, it's not exactly a compliment. You kind of want to stay away from that person. I think it was Will Rogers who spoke of a man who was so righteous he was no damn good. <laughs> but in the Bible, the word translated into English as righteous or righteousness almost always should be translated as just and justice. Think of how it affects the meaning of some familiar verses from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Verses, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we're supposed to be more righteous than those guys? Change it to justice, unless your justice exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. By the way, hardly ever happens except maybe when you're a teenager and if you're a goody two-shoes, okay? But think of the meaning, blessed are you when you are persecuted for justice' sake. The point being, so many of the big words of the Christian vocabulary have been either flattened or distorted 
by their meaning within the common framework of common Christianity. And so, the need to redeem, reclaim Christian language, to learn how to speak Christian again, not just individual words, but also how to understand our central stories and how to understand collections of words like the creeds and the language of the Eucharist. To some extent, the future of Christianity depends upon reclaiming our language. You can't be French if nobody any longer speaks and understands French. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marcus Borg. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about us online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, too. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author and theologian Marcus Borg. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I invite you to join us at Westminster for upcoming forums on Thursday, May 5th at noon. Noted psychologist Frederick Luskin will discuss the power of forgiveness. And on Friday evening, June 24th at 7 p.m., Krista Tippett will explore spiritual genius lessons for living gleaned from her radio show. And now, Dr. Borg, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. If religion is, in fact, like or is language, can one be multilingual in a religious sense? Um, the answer is yes, okay. And let me come at it with two points. Uh, first of all, I think it's really important for Christians to be bilingual in the sense of being able to say what Christian language means in other words, in words that uh, our uh, secular friends or associates can understand. If we can't say what Christian language means in other words, then we probably don't understand what Christian language means. Now, that's bilingual, and the question I appreciate was about multilingual. Um, I think it's very helpful to be able to see that what Buddhism talks about with the language of enlightenment is also what the Gospel of John means with salvation. Salvation for John is basically enlightenment. So in that case, uh, being multilingual is helpful. And then I want to add, except in interfaith contexts where it's an interfaith worship service, I don't think it's very helpful for Christians to include language and stories from other traditions in their worship services, or for Buddhists, to try to include Christian language in their worship services. And it's not about religious exclusivism. It's more about the beauty of preserving the particularity of each religious tradition, rather than out of an interest in global ecumenism, kind of blending them all together. Now, I'm all in favor of strongly affirming religious pluralism. But the kind of blending of religious language, I think, is less than helpful, as if um, the best way we become global citizens is by mixing together French, Korean, 
Italian, and uh, Turkish in some single language. Your work, The Heart of Christianity, almost 10 years ago, posited two dominant forms of American Christianity, one you call earlier and one you call emerging. Now, 10 years later, the emergent church movement is a major phenomenon happening across the country. Would you care to comment on that? Okay. Um, what I spoke of in the heart of Christianity, uh, I think in 2003, as an earlier Christian paradigm and an emerging Christian paradigm is to some extent what I'm talking about today by referring to common Christianity, that's the earlier Christian paradigm, heaven and hell Christianity, and then this reclaiming of Christian language. To relate that to the question that Tim just asked, there's no agreed upon name yet for what I speak of as an emerging form of Christianity. Some people call it emerging Christianity. Some people call it progressive Christianity. Diana Butler Bass calls it generative Christianity. Now, emergent, with a T, and emerging Christianity are not identical. Emergent Christianity typically refers to a progressive form of Christianity that is confusion here, emerging primarily in evangelical circles. And there are a number of different forms of emergent Christianity. I won't make this response overly long, but in some cases it's basically conventional evangelical Christianity with modern forms of worship. In other cases, it's kind of conventional evangelical Christianity, but without a building or paid clergy. And in other cases, it's not only new forms of worship, but distinctly new forms of theology as well. So what uh, one book is called The Emergent Highway has maybe four lanes of traffic that are somewhat different from each other. When did the flattening or distortion of the Christian words, Christian language, begin? Who did it? <clears throat> um, yeah, his name was, no. <laughs> it, it's the result of a gradual process. Um, let me begin with uh, two of the features I mentioned in my talk. Um, the notion of biblical inerrancy, that the Bible has a divine guarantee to be factually true because it comes from God as no other book does, nobody had spoken of that until the second half of the 1600s, so that's a recent development. The notion of um, the Bible needing to be interpreted in a literal, factual way is even more recent. Um, to some extent, as an insistent form of literalism, largely a product of the last hundred years, with roots maybe 50 years or so earlier. But to go to the heaven and hell, sin and forgiveness part of common Christianity, a strong emphasis on heaven and hell, sin and forgiveness, is the result of, of the process that began when Christianity became the dominant religion within the Roman Empire in the late 300s. I mean, it became legal in the early 300s, but by the late 300s, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that process continued for several centuries as Christianity moved into various geographical regions of Europe, it was typically introduced by the ruling class. And ruling class Christianity is very, very different from uh, proletarian Christianity, if you will. If you are a monarch or a member of the aristocracy, what kind of Christianity do you want your people practicing? You want them practicing a kind of Christianity that emphasizes that it's all about the afterlife. 
It's all about where you're going to go beyond death, that includes the threat of hell if you're bad, and that includes an emphasis upon the big problem is in life is your individual righteousness or lack of it. You don't want your people going around saying, you know, we live in Egypt under a pharaoh, and God's will is that we not be economically exploited or politically oppressed. Or you don't want them going around saying, you know, this is Babylon, you know. Uh, you want them thinking that the big religious issues are not about what this world is like, but about where you will spend eternity and about your own moral rectitude or lack thereof. And so heaven and hell Christianity is the perfect political domestication of Christianity. We have a number of uh, creedal Christians in the room, apparently. Several questions about the Nicene Creed, yeah. which, of course, is written uh, at the uh, behest of the emperor, Constantine. Mm -hmm. uh, how can we reclaim, or can we reclaim, the language of Nicaea, that creed? I'm an Episcopalian, as you know from uh, the introduction. And the Nicene Creed is part of every Sunday morning worship service, and uh, the Apostles' Creed is part of uh, morning prayer and evensong and so forth. So we say the creeds a lot, and I've had to make my peace with the creed. Let, let me make more than one comment here, and I'll try not to go on too long. First comment, part, part of the problem that people have with the creeds is that they think they're supposed to understand the language quite literally, and also absolutely, like the creed is meant to say the way things really are in some non-negotiable language. Okay? And to that I would say it's important to realize that the Nicene Creed, like the Bible itself, is a human historical product. And to take a what I call historical hyphen metaphorical approach to its language. A historical approach means asking, what did this language mean in the ancient setting in which it was composed and spoken and heard? In the fourth century, that would be, of course, with the Nicene Creed. And a metaphorical approach means, what is its more than literal meaning? So that's the first step. Second step, the meaning of the word, the verb believe. I believe, we believe, okay? Prior to the year 1600, the word believe meant something very different from what it has come to mean in modern English. In modern English, the verb believe most commonly has a statement following it. I believe it will rain tomorrow. Uh, I believe the capital of New Hampshire is, oof, what is it again? And I'm, it's not that I've forgotten, but we use the word believe with a statement following it. Oftentimes we use it when we're not sure. You know, just think of how you use that word. Prior to about the year 1600, in English and German, but even more importantly in the ancient languages of Greek and Latin that the creeds were formulated in, also works in Hebrew, the word believe never had a statement following it, but always a person. And in a Christian context, that means either Jesus or God, okay? And it didn't mean, I believe you're telling the truth, it meant what the English word Belove means, or I give my heart to, which is a rough synonym for I beloved. Now think of the difference that would make if you thought when you're saying the creed, I beloved God, or I give my heart to God, and who's that? The maker of heaven and earth. And I beloved Jesus, or I give my heart to Jesus, and who's that? You know, the one we tell these stories about. Suddenly, it's no longer about saying, I hereby give my intellectual assent to the following propositions as absolutely true. 
but it's a statement of loyalty, devotion, commitment, allegiance, not to these words, but to the realities to which those words point. Last comment about the creed, though I've got many more, and there's much more about the creed in the book. Um, <laughs> I think we would have less difficulty with the creed if we chanted it or sang it because we basically never worry whether the words that are set to music are literally and factually true, you know? And it's not that the words to music aren't important. They're very important. We often remember them much better than words that are simply spoken. But instead of it being, you know, a declaration of intellectual assent, it becomes something that operates at a deeper level of ourselves if we were to sing the creeds and to understand that in so doing, we are also joining our voices to all those centuries of long dead Christians who have heard or said or sung these words, these clunky words that stumble in the face of mystery, but we experience a momentary participation in the communion of saints. Apparently, Dr. Borg, there's another cobber and spud in the room here. A question from that person. Please draw a distinction between religion or religious and faith or faithfulness. I feel our culture is overly religious at the expense of faithfulness. I agree that our culture is overly religious at the expense of, at the expense of faithfulness. Um, some ironies, and I won't get into my whole lecture about this. The United States is statistically the most Christian country in the world. And yet, with 5% of the world's population, we account for half of the world's military spending. The United States is statistically the most Christian country in the world, and yet we have the greatest income inequality of any developed nation in the world. There's a tremendous ambiguity in American Christianity. Can you be a Christian and depend primarily upon superior military power for your security. Now notice what I emphasize, depend primarily. I'm not saying a country doesn't need to defend itself. But the bottom line is we depend overwhelmingly for our security upon overwhelming military power. So in that sense, um, <clears throat> You can have a lot of religion and very little faithfulness to God or Jesus. But the second comment I want to make is this. Religion is not a bad word for me. Uh, definitions of religion that I really like when they're working at their best. Religions are means, practical means of ultimate transformation. Religions, at their best, are for healing the wounds of existence. And the relationship of religion as tradition and institution to what we might call spirituality, which is more private and devotional, if you will, uh, spirituality, no better yet, religion, is the way spirituality gains traction within history. I owe that way of putting it to my friend and colleague, Houston Smith. The analogy is to the life of the intellect. Lord knows educational institutions are imperfect, but educational institutions are the way the life of the intellect gets traction within history. So even though I think religion is a frightfully ambiguous phenomenon, not just in the United States, but historically. Um, without religion, the wisdom of the traditions and the beauty of the traditions and all of that would simply be lost.
Do you have any comments on the co-mingling of religion and politics in the U.S. today? Oh, sure. <laughs> I, I suspected you might. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> some mainline Christians have been critical of the Christian right for mingling religion and politics or commingling religion and politics. I'm not among them. Uh, I think for somebody who understands the biblical tradition, religion and politics are pervasively intertwined. And so our conservative Christian brothers and sisters, for the most part, have got hold of the right stick, but I'd say they've got it by the wrong end. <laughs> and to expand what I mean, when you think about it, the Bible is a pervasively political document from beginning to end. The most important story in the Jewish tradition that gives birth to the Bible as a whole is the story of the Exodus from Egypt, what the contemporary Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls Israel's primal narrative, her most important story, her originating story. And what's that story about? It's a story about liberation from political oppression and economic exploitation, even as, of course, it's also a religious story. Meaning, it includes the affirmation is that, that God's will is that we not be slaves to a politically and economically oppressive and exploitative system. Then the prophets of the Jewish Bible who come along uh, in the time of the monarchy in ancient Israel, when in effect Egypt has been recreated within Israel and the Israelite king has become a new pharaoh, the prophets are God-intoxicated voices of religious social protest against the ruling elites of wealth and power in their own time. And you get to the protest against the Babylonian Empire. And then you get to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is for the earth. It's about a transformed earth. The Bible is passionate about economic justice and about peace, meaning the end of war. And I'm afraid we're going to have to stop there. Yeah. And once you see it, you wonder how you ever could have missed it. And once you see this, then you wonder how, how, how you can be both a supporter of our vast military expenditure and our economic inequality and, and still be Christian. Thank you, Marcus Borg.